Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today, gosh, I hope I could call you a friend, Roger. Uh, Roger yes, absolutely. <laughs> Fellow traveler, even. <laughs> Fellow Canadian. Uh, trusted advisor to the CEOs of companies worldwide, including Procter & Gamble, Lego, and Ford. In 2017, Roger was named the world's number one management thinker by Thinkers 50, a biannual ranking of the most influential global business thinkers. Roger is a professor emeritus sorry, at the Rotman School of Management at University of Toronto, where he served as dean from 1998 to 2013, where I got to meet Roger about more than a decade ago, the academic director of the Michael Lee Chin Family Institute for Corporate Citizenship from 2004 to 2019, and institute director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 through 2019. In 2013, he was named Global Dean of the Year by the leading business school website, Poets and Quants. His newest book, which is a page turner, is A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Managerial Effectiveness. Of course, Roger has written 12 other books that I know of, including The Greats, When More is Not Better, Creating Great Choice, Choices, written with my pal as well, Jennifer Rial, and yeah. Playing to Win, written with A.G. Laffley which won the award for best book of the 2012-2013 by the Thinkers 50. Roger's also written 30 Harvard Business Review articles. He's received his BA from Harvard College with a concentration in economics and his MBA from the Harvard Business School. He lives in South Florida now with his wife, who might argue is potentially smarter than Roger, uh, Marie-Louise. Mm -hmm. Roger, yes. so good to uh, have you here today. Thanks for taking the time, my friend. Lot to cover. Uh, we do want to tackle this book, A New Way to Think. In it, um, you've presented 14 kind of unique models and takes for leaders and executives ultimately to become better leaders and better executives. And I, I think when I went through it, I found myself, uh, it took me three days, by the way, to, to, to read it. So three nights, I was just like, keep going, keep going. This is great. It's kind of, I would say, a management handbook, if you will, right? Like the way in which that you've done it is you don't have to read these models in order. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, I could use this at this stage in my career or this stage of the evolution of my team or organization. So to that end, I'd like to discuss four of the 14, uh, but I want to put them in a different order than the book because you recommend it doesn't matter what order you actually read matter. the book. Yeah, doesn't matter. So now, can I, can I can I give a let's let's light uh, shout out to John Hull. He's one of the really great professors at the Rotman uh, uh, School. Uh, he's a finance professor uh, and great, great with students. Students love him, and he has the the uh, most important book on options and derivatives in the world. Sixty percent market share. Of, uh, of books in that category. And his is a manual. And so all the uh, traders and investment bankers have that on their bookshelf. And you go to the chapter that, you know, if you're doing this or you're doing that, uh, you pull it, you pull out John Holt. So I, I used to talk to him about his, his book because he was all excited. It's on its like 11th uh, edition or something, <laughs> probably 15th by, by, by now. So that was a bit the inspiration. It's, it's, you can put it on your shelf and pull it out and say, oh, M&A or, oh, innovation and and uh read that so john hull uh partially inspired this oh i love it well i love when you give hat tips like that uh fantastic okay so the four we're going to get into today roger from the book are corporate functions talent knowledge and culture or knowledge work sorry and culture in that order it's not the order of the book of course mm -hmm. 
corporate functions. So um, for those that know me and you know me for more than a decade now, you know, I come from the uh, services and or people in culture HR side of organizations from my work at places like SAP and TELUS. And so one of my uh, biggest beefs, if not uh, top three banes inside the organization is that whole notion of the corporate function. So i.e. IT, HR, other, you know, support corporate functions. And, and one of my banes, Roger, is HR in particular. And, and the notion that, oh, um, you know, we have to support the business or, oh, you know, oh, that's the business or, you know, oh, that's not our problem. That's the business as if they're not part of the business. And so you argue in the book that the functions that are there to faithfully execute the, the strategy of the operating business, those corporate functions, you, you argue, well, wait a second, like they also need strategy themselves. So it's not just the business that has the strategy. Actually, the corporate functions need strategies to be effective to the same extent that the operating businesses do. So let's unpack that to start with here. What, what's your take on it? Yeah, well, well, my take on it is the usual thing is exactly what you described, which is sort of you're just there to there to serve. Now, there's some truth to that, right? And if you if you're if you don't help the businesses uh, kind of succeed, then then you're not very useful as a function. But you're more than an order taker, right? Uh, and and many functions. When you talk to people in, in corporate functions, they're like, oh, my man, so busy. People keep asking for stuff and you get a long, long list of things and you just try to work your way down, down the list of things. And then the business units are like, well, they don't really add all that much value. And the reason I think is that is that the function doesn't sit back and ask the fundamental questions of strategy, right? What is my aspiration as a function? Where am I going to play? Where am I going to invest my resources? How am I going to win? That's how will I invest those resources in a way that creates value far in excess of my costs? Then what capabilities do I have to build? What management systems uh, uh, do I have to have to support that? And, and I, I find the functions that ask those questions and say, what's not as important? Why don't we figure out how to outsource that, for example, because there's many things that are outsourcing now. I mean, if you'd have, you know, if you'd gone back 50 years, your HR function would have been doing payroll, right? Yeah. Right. Like literally making sure the checks went out now. Well, th- nobody does that anymore. It's all, it's all outsourced to somebody who does it better and cheaper, right? Uh, and uh, like ADP or, or, or who, Radio, whoever. Radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so as functions, you've got a real choice as to where do I invest and invest heavily because I understand the businesses and how I can add value uh, to them. And... And once I know what they need, and I've thought about that, I can ask myself, what's the cleverest way to accomplish that? Uh, and that's strategy. So I want functions to think of themselves as, as making real choices and having kind of a sense of agency. Uh, they're not just they're not just under the thumb of the of the business units. And treated that way. Now, I also say warn against the going to the other extreme. You sometimes have imperial functions, which is <laughs> like, you know, we've decided what's important uh, because we know our territory. We're IT, and we're we're going to decide exactly what you're going to get. 
Uh, and then the businesses are like, oh, I don't, I don't want that. I don't care about, uh, about that. Oh no, that's what we're going to do. So you vacillate between sort of being servile. You're just an order taker trying to follow the list or imperial. And I say, there's, there's a place in between, which is to be choiceful, to be strategic. What, what can the um, corporate functions then do differently in their, in their setup? So you've mentioned, you know, the order taker approach. So I find many HR and learning functions, by the way, are the order takers. They wait for the business to send over the wall, do this for us. And then, you know, on the more imperial side, you know, we've got an IT shop that tells you what's above the line and below the line, and you shall have this update or this systems implementation in six years from now, because that's when we're going to get to it. So what can they do differently as a corporate function, I guess, culturally? One is to really be like a, any good kind of marketing organization is to understand your customer. Mm -hmm. So it's to, to, be, to be in with the business, the people in the business units and figuring out what they're trying to accomplish so that you can develop essentially offers, right? You know, this is what, this is what I see you needing. I see, I see you needing kind of, uh, you know, kind of better, better quality of people who stay longer. Okay. So, and it's exactly this kind of people. Um, what can we do in HR to both recruit that kind of uh, uh, person that they need and help the business in, uh, in retaining them? That way, the business doesn't have to ask for it, and they'll get used to the notion that that gee, the HR people know our business so well that they know what to invest in, uh, and and uh, you know they know that if we don't rotate people around uh, this this business unit, people get stale and say, oh, I'm going to go and 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 work somewhere else where I can get a new opportunity. So they are proactively coming out and saying, you know what? That person who you've been rating highly for the last three years, easiest thing would be to keep them in their in their current position. I know that, but here, our statistics show that person she's going to leave unless we give her an, a, a new opportunity. So let's work and figure out what would be an opportunity within the business unit uh, that uh, that she can shift to uh, to stay. You'd want to be proactive and saying. You know, what we've got to do is develop a system for tracking that, right, uh, so that we can build the capability of proactively uh, going and doing it. So we create this value to the business unit of helping them have the people that they need and the positions they, uh, they need. That would be, and that, and so where are you playing? You, you are, you're playing in sort of the career development and progression kind of business, because that's super, super important. Uh, and that's how that's how you are making that that strategy happen. It's a it's a wonderful illustration, and uh, I wish we had thought through this in a green room and said, "Hey, let's do it this way." But it's actually segue nicely <laughs> to the the second of four I wanted to get into, Roger, which is talent. And so mm -hmm. you have a gray line in the book, uh, which is um, feeling special is more important than compensation, and you have this wonderful. Uh, dichotomy of a story between sort of Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers quarterback and Tom Brady who left New England to go to Tampa Bay and win a Super Bowl. And you're basically saying, look, um, compensation that's really performance-based, incentive-based compensation is critical to attracting and retaining talent. Although 
really what you're getting at is a talented employee, you know, acting and allowed to act with agency as an individual with those unique needs and desires is actually more important than performance-based incentivization. So tell us a bit about kind of that segue story that, well, talent actually, if you're not feeling special, they're going to walk or you can't attract and you really have to do something different than just, you know, slapping them with RSUs. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And again, this is my, one of my managerial philosophies is like treat people like humans. And if, and if that's hard for you to figure out what to do, think of it as you, right? What would you like, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's, a not, that's not a bad proxy for humans. Right. Um, and, and is that how you work, Dan? You don't, as long as somebody's paying you more and paying you more, you're going you're gonna to spend your life doing that thing? I don't think so. So why do you assume other people would is the, is, is the question. I know you don't, you personally don't think that, but that, that's what I, that, you know, that's what I, I, I encourage people, uh, people to say. And, and with talent, especially, especially if you're thinking of tailor the distribution kind of talent, which, you know, you need some of it. Now, I think you got to treat everybody as, as talent and my, my arguments uh, kind of uh, apply to everybody. But if you think of, of really, really, kind of high in talent, the thing about them is they can work anywhere, right? They have, they have all sorts of options. And the way they've gotten talented typically is to work super hard at their craft, take more chances, invest more of themselves in it to get to that position. Right. If you want to use Tom Brady as an, as an example, he's sort of legendary for his work ethic and, you know, yeah. his, his eating habits and all these things. He's done all of these things and he does more film study than anybody else's. He stays longer after practice. That's what these folks with talent do. They do all sorts of things to make themselves special. And then they hate like fire being treated like everybody else. <laughs> right? yeah. Even if it's an exalted class, right? You know, you know, you're an all-star quarterback. And so this is what all-star quarterbacks should get. No, 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 no. You know, it's I'm Tom Brady or I'm Aaron Rodgers. And I want to be treated as that in unique individual. And it's not, I don't think it's a conceit either. It's just, that's, that's who they are. They are somebody who has developed themselves in a, in a, in a special way. Um, and so, so you need to you know, pay attention to them, you know, if you ignore things that they ask about, ask for, you're just down on your hands and knees begging uh, for trouble. If you block their path of, of development, you're, you're begging for trouble because what have they done all their lives is develop themselves and, and get better. So, so it, you, you just, you just have to think about what got them there and therefore, kind of what do they care about? Uh, and Aaron Rodgers was in at this time of the year at the training camp last year was in was in an incredibly foul mood about the Green Bay Packers. Why? It's because they were ignoring uh, uh, what he, you know, felt the team needed. Did he want to run the team? You know, no. But he just hated when he would say, "Boy." this player is playing uh, uh, great in practice. I'm really excited about uh, the potential. And then, and then the general manager cuts the player the next day. It's like, so, so you, you want to scream in my ear 
your views don't matter at all. You know, good luck with that. They they hit a point of almost, you know, a divorce essentially, and then finally woke up and said, gee, maybe we should be paying some attention to Aaron Rodgers. And he's come to training camp this year, all gleeful and, and ready, ready to roll, ready to, uh, uh, to play uh, just because he is, hasn't been completely ignored. And I think it's just a lesson for, for talent uh, in general. Listen to them. If you don't agree with them, tell them why. Uh, but don't say, you know, I'm, I'm your boss. You're a fantastic research scientist, uh, uh, Dan, uh, yeah, but I run this, the, the, this uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, company. Could you just please get back to work and, and do the research? I'm paying you a pretty penny to do. Gone. You're gone. You're yeah. just maybe not next week, but you'll be gone as soon as another opportunity uh, kind of presents itself. Do you think in those situations, Roger, when it comes to talent, and we know there, there is that curve, right? A bell curve, if you will, of talent on the, on the high end of the bell, you know, your top 10%, let's call it for the time being. Um, do you think when we're not listening to them, when we're not paying attention, when we're not sort of treating them with the respect that they do deserve because they are that outlier they are that top and high performer that when we don't and whether it's the case of Aaron Rodgers or the data scientist examples is it almost like a, an attack on their self-worth like is that where we get to absolutely uh you know it yeah it it, it that's a good way to describe it uh and you know it's it's happened to me and I and I can't stop myself from uh, from exiting, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so so I, so I, I you know I think I think it's just it's felt it's felt very viscerally. And again, I I like things, Dan, that don't cost you a dollar to get a dollar benefit. Right. right. So I like advertising more than I like promotion because if I give you a dollar off your next, I don't know, whatever, a tube of Crest, it costs me a dollar to get a dollar's benefit. Right. If I instead have fantastic ad copy that's really compelling, I can spend, you know, I don't know, whatever, $20 million on an ad campaign and get $100 million of value. So I'm always looking for things that don't cost dollar for dollar. And considering talents, points of uh, view, making sure you're not blocking their path of, of progress, giving them pats on the back for a job well done. How expensive are those things? I mean, you had a long uh, history in HR. How expensive are those things? How much do you have to deep dig deep into the corporate coffers to pay for those three things? Generally speaking, they're free, right? So I, right. I, like, I like when you can, <laughs> for free, uh, do something great. If your if your theory is is in order to get talent to stay, you have to pay them the big bucks, right? It costs a dollar more right. to yeah, get a yeah. dollar of benefit, right? Yeah. Yeah. One dollar, your leverage is one to one, and you do not become a great organization doing things where your leverage is one to one. If your leverage is 
a thousand to one. Yes, it did take, 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 you know, you, you could calculate your, your cost of a conversation and it cost you, you know, whatever, a uh, hundred bucks uh, to, to have a, a longer conversation with talent than it would have otherwise be the case. But then talent stays and creates $10 million of value. Your leverage is gigantic. Yeah. And that's, and that's the way I, that's the way I think about, you know, lots in, in business, what, what things could, could provide leverage and with talent, it's treating them special is the greatest leverage that you can get. So the river we're paddling down now in our two person canoe, perhaps three, <laughs> if we throw a Mintzberg in there to the Canadian reference. Uh, yeah. So we've gone kind of the corporate function through to talent, but talent then in my opinion, at least thinking about your four team models, but these four in particular you want to get to today is the third one is knowledge work. Mm -hmm. And so talent to knowledge work, where I'm trying to create the, um, the affinity here is you argue that we should be thinking in our organizations about projects, not necessarily jobs. And in fact, redefining the job contract such that we organize the knowledge work and workers around time bound projects. So does that help? like break down the corporate functions uh, and the delineation that we need there, or I guess the assimilation of kind of like, how do we serve one another through strategy, as well as the point about talent is, is knowledge work with your assertion, we redefine the job contract through projects, another way in which to help the executive and the leader create the right organizational model to succeed and perform. Yes, I, I think these are those are, are synergistic. Uh, and so if you put anybody and talent included into an organizational structure that wasn't designed for the task at hand, then I think you make their their life kind of more you know more miserable. Um, <laughs> right. and and um, and also right, functions tend to be kind of all kind of, knowledge uh work right and and you know i think the great the great tragedy of of organizational design is that is that you know in the good old days if you go back 100 years ago what you'd have seen with most companies most large companies that aren't that aren't tiny little uh, small medium-sized enterprises it would have been a lot of factories often they were manufacturing but they can be a service factory like a like a bank with its branches those are service factories uh you know automobile assembly plant as a product uh, factory there would be mainly those and then small office towers that are sort of sitting on on uh, on top of them and because the weight of organization was in the factories we used the way of organizing from the factories in those office towers and those were flat jobs Right, you were yeah. the third kind of kind of worker on the on the assembly line. You were a teller or now a customer service rep in a in a branch, and you came in at nine a.m. and did the same thing all day till till uh, till five. Then what happened, of course, was those office towers got big, and so even for hardcore manufacturers, there are more uh, uh, wage dollars in the office towers by far than in the manufacture uh, manufacturing plants. Yeah. Um, but we didn't change. We didn't ask the question. Now that this is the main thing that we spend uh, labor dollars on, shouldn't we think about how we organize them? It's just, let's keep doing that. But if you look at all the work that goes on in office towers, the vast, vast majority of it is actually projects. So your title might be brand manager. If we go back to brand manager for Crest, 
but it's not as though you come in Monday and do kind of the same things all week along, right? Yep. You don't, you've got these projects. Oh, you know, we're having pricing pressure on, on this. We got to go work with the, the, the you know, retail trade to figure out how to deal with that. Oh, we've got a launch coming up. We're going to re, re kind of brand this. We've got a new thing uh, uh, coming out. They're projects that come and go. And so, so what we've done is, is jammed people into these flat jobs when it's really a series of, of projects. I think that actually makes people people's lives less fulfilling mm -hmm. because often they view they, they 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 view things as oh dear i've got this project interfering with my work <laughs> right right yeah no, no that is your work and if we <laughs> and if we just told them that that would be better and then the poor the poor crest brand manager when crest is 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 super super busy because they've got five or six things going on that's when their their you know wife or husband at you know at home just says hey sweetie since we're not you know so not seeing each other anymore why don't we get divorced right it, <laughs> it, it creates uh, creates uh, stresses if instead you know procter and gamble's got like 25 billion dollar brands if instead of each having a brand manager, you had a cadre of 25 kind of brand management specialists uh, and they could be deployed against projects, regardless of which brand uh, uh, it was, and they, they could get deployed to projects and then follow them uh, to their end and feel like I finished that, that uh, project. One, you'd be more efficient. Two, I think it would be a more satisfying uh, uh, job. Mm -hmm. And lots of people say, oh, well, that's impossible for a big company, Roger. That's nice in theory. Well, last time I checked, Deloitte and Accenture are $50 billion companies. Right. And that's how they organize. McKinsey's a 10 or $15 billion company, depending on who you believe. That's how they organize. So I think, I think the future of, of, of kind of decision, what I call them, these are decision factories. They manufacture decisions how to launch this product, how to redo our relationship with the trade or whatever, they will be organized uh, around projects. It's inevitable, um, but you know, it, takes, it takes a long time to change from a standard uh, model, um, but it'll, be, it'll win because you know, the companies that are organized by project are doing really well. So one of the reasons, like, you know, a big company, a company with 100,000 workers will have some big task, right? Oh, we've got to, you know, install this new IT system or, or, or whatever. And they can't find 20 people to free up to do it because everybody's got their regular job. Right. Who, who do they call? Accenture or Accenture, Deloitte yeah. or, or IBM Global Services or, or somebody who, because they're organized by project, always have people that they can throw at it. And it, and it costs, you know, five to 10 times as much to do it that way than it does to do it internally. But the company says, yeah, we just didn't have the resources. Yes, you did. Yeah. Yes, you did. But they were all tied up in what they thought of as flat, flat jobs. And they could say, well, I could get 5% of this person, 10% of that person, whatever. I'd rather have these full-time people come in from Accenture and charge us a, a whack of money uh, to do it for us. So if all the industrial companies uh, went to this, it would be bad for the consulting companies, but uh, I can live with that. <laughs> well, I mean, in, if you sort of take other uh, thinking of yours and other material you've written, you know, you have uh, this 
this great thought about efficiency versus effectiveness versus productivity. But there's also almost this, if you kind of look inside, you know, the knowledge worker makeup today or the knowledge work itself, um, there is an inefficiency that is inherent inside the organization because of almost the siloed nature of the job description. And ergo that employee is fixated and the manager is fixated on improving the effectiveness or efficiency of the worker in the role, not looking almost panoptically at, well, how might we as an organization use those talents and thus the inefficiency of said employee to deploy elsewhere on other projects? Is that a fair assumption from some of your yeah. other thinking? Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, uh, and we know that there's enormous amount of unhelpful slack in the organization because these big organizations do this binge and purge thing, right? Yeah. Things are going well, they, they binge on hiring, hiring people and then they say, oh, our bottom line is terrible, so we'll fire 10,000 white collar employees. And you'd say, oh my God, that'll, everything will you know, grind to a halt uh, and, and Generally, it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. at all. I mean, you've probably you probably were through through that at SAP and and tell us it, uh, once or uh, once or yeah. more times in each, several, each place, yeah. several times in each place, and and you, and why, right? It's because there is a whole lot of a, a whole lot of unhelpful, unnecessary slack in uh, in organizations that you could you could get more efficient in a way that's more productive and again better better for people. But it requires thinking about the model that you're using. And this is one of the things about the, about the book. It's like, I talk about 14 models that need to be replaced, but people would not call that a model, right? Because it's done unthinkingly. Yeah. It's just like, this is the way it's always done. Uh, let's go and recruit for uh, a, a VP of this as if that's their flat, uh, flat job. Um, uh, it's it's sort of one of the many sort of implicit models that constrain the way we operate. Yeah. All right, we got time for one more of the four I wanted to yes. talk about today from the fourteen, um, and that's culture. And mm. you know, uh, it's not it's not my favorite. It's just to me, it's the one that for for my line of work, right? As a as a, a leadership and culture strategist. It's the one that binds the, the book together, if you will, in my world. So yes. you, you say culture can't be uh, changed by mandating it um, or formally recognizing roles and responsibilities. Rather, it can only be changed indirectly by altering uh, how individuals work with each other. And so that to me screams uh, behavior. It screams, you know, what is it that we're doing as leaders and executives? to create that right atmosphere, those right processes, you know, the right working together, if you will, if you're an Alan Mulally fan kind of principles. So tell me a bit again, how your take on what it is and what it isn't, this, this thing called culture. Sure. Well, to me, culture is, is the shared set of norms and interpretations people in an have that then drives what they think is the right thing to do. Right. And so I say a company has got a strong culture, not a not necessarily good or bad. Strong culture is if you could have 20 people, it's sort of like in a in a in a in a you know operating theater where you've got people watching people operating, you've got 20 people uh up watching uh an interaction between uh like a manager and uh, a superior and their subordinate. Uh and and then you got each of the 20 people to write down 
what what really happened there? Mm-hmm. What what's what's the narrative uh, there? And if they all had the same thing, right? Uh, then you'd have a strong culture, right? All right. Oh wow, he was getting chewed out uh, by uh, by his boss, uh, and uh, he's now in trouble. And uh, it, you know he he might be on the way out. And uh, well, the uh, the bear pit, Roger. Yeah, Going into yeah, yeah. The bear pit. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if instead uh, people have different interpretations, oh, that was a friendly conversation, or that was da, 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 all sorts of different conversation or different interpretations, then you don't have a strong culture because you don't have shared interpretations of 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 uh, of how things uh, happen and what uh, and what should happen. Um, and so, so by developing that interpretation of what's happening, because it's a consistent pattern of, of behavior, right? Um, you get the culture. That's how things are done around here. When somebody does a bad, uh, you know, uh, underperforms, you chew them out uh, like that. And so everybody will chew them out like that. And then you'll have a culture of, of hiding mistakes as long as possible because you don't want to get chewed out like, uh, uh, like that, you know, trying to blame somebody else, et cetera. That will be your culture. And, uh, and then people will complain, well, we don't have an entrepreneurial culture here. People don't try things, right? I wonder and, why. I wonder yeah, why. Yeah. yeah. And then somebody will come in, well, we just need to reorganize and flatten the organization, or we need to mandate being more entrepreneurial. The CEO will say, we're going to be more entrepreneurial, right? And none of that, you know, you're laughing because you're, you're an experienced guy in this, you know, you've seen it all and it never works. Exactly. The only thing that will work, right, is by having uh, the most senior people in the organization behave differently. Literally, and you, and you can say, are you kidding me, Roger? It will take forever to change something. No, it won't, because Kremlin watching does not only happen in Moscow, right? <laughs> uh, it happens everywhere, right? Everybody watches the inter- individual interactions uh, among, among people and then say, okay, that's how things are done around here. Therefore, I should both do things that way and I should act uh, uh, accordingly. Um, and so, so if any, I say this to all the companies I, I work with, the CEOs, it, every single interpersonal interaction you have is going to be critical to creating a culture. And you need to be intentional so that it's the culture that you want to have, right? Not the culture that, uh, uh, that, you, that uh, you might dream about. Um, it's, it, and you can make it uh, happen. Uh-huh. So, you know, Four Seasons, a great Canadian company, Izzy Sharp, it's, it's, got a, it's got a great culture. Mm-hmm. It's got a culture that all the other chains are pretty much jealous of. Uh, and people are like, gee, how do you get that culture? Well, you have a guy like Izzy Sharp who wanders around the hotels, uh, you know, shaking hands with, with everybody, providing encouragement, creating systems that, that say, you, if we ever make mistakes, you gotta be. We gotta tell each other the mistakes so that we can go and make it up to the the guests before they they leave the hotel. Then everything will be fine. And so people in Four Seasons don't spend their entire day worrying about if they're going to make a mistake and get get you know the crap beaten out of them or fired uh, fired for it. But they think about 
doing the best they can, but mistakes will happen. What do you do when a mistake happens? You, you kind of uh, report it um, uh, immediately so that you can put together a plan for uh, kind of uh, restoring that, that guest's uh, feeling. Then you have all the competitors saying, gosh, I don't know how we could ever replicate Four Seasons uh, uh, culture. Uh, maybe we'll hire some Four Seasons people, which <laughs> we do, and then then install them into a horrible culture, uh, and you know that's not going to change uh, change anything. So it may appear intimidating. What I'm saying is intimidating. Like, wow, that'll take a lot of work, and that'll take forever. My experience is it does not take forever. It happens quickly, but it does put the onus on the most senior people in the organization to actually be actively involved in creating the culture that they want to see. You know, Mahatma Gandhi was not a dummy, right? <laughs> he was a very smart guy. Yeah. And he's, and what did he say? You know, be the change you want to see. That would be my, my uh, advice uh, to CEOs. Listen to Gandhi. Uh, he had it right. Gosh, it's so good. Uh, could talk for hours with you. Uh, the book is a new way to think. Before I ask where we can find more uh, about you, uh, Roger, just a little sidebar commentary. Um, mm -hmm. uh, two things. First of all, if we're Peter Drucker around, and I know he's a hero of yours, I mean, first of all, he would be lauding the book uh, because of its clarity from both the uh, kind of organizational modeling perspective, but the humanistic side that you wax lyrical about in each of the 14. And so for me, I think that this is like the 1952 version of Drucker's work for 2022 and beyond. Uh, it's oh. that it's that good. And it does pinpoint for many executives and leaders who should be reading the book, what they could be doing differently, right? To uh, provide the experience for their customers in turn through the employees and that important relationship that Drucker always spoke of, but you've taken it to a, a 2022 beyond level, which I think is really important. So I just want to say thanks for the book. Um, and the second part is publicly wanted to, to thank you for your seemingly unending support of me as uh, this uh, up and coming Canadian, I suppose, in the world of management and leadership writing and thinking. Um, you've always been in my corner. I just wanted to thank you that for that as well. Well, uh, thank you for saying both of those things. One, it's it's a pleasure to be supporting what you're, what you're doing. Uh, you know, I'm a bit picky and, you know, uh, <laughs> with one of the, one of your, 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 your books, I precipitated a whole lot of work oh, yes. uh, for, for, uh, uh, for you. Um, but it's really easy for me to, you know, get involved and, and be supportive of somebody who's got the talent and, and dedication you have. So, so it's, it's my pleasure. And second, thank you for what you said about Drucker. He is my hero and, and to be compared in any way to the greatest management thinker of all time is is uh, is a lovely thing, but I'm I'm glad you picked up on the sort of the humanistic uh, side to it. I, I I've if there's if there's like one synoptic thing I would give as advice to anybody in making any managerial decision, it is try and make it a human one, right? Is this kind of consistent with human beings and how they are? Or is it trying to turn a human into something that they really aren't? That'll steer you away from a hell of a lot of 
extraordinarily bad ideas. Uh, and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you picked up on that because it's becoming stronger, a stronger view of mine as, as I go along uh, is, is that's where most of the managerial errors are made when you treat customers, workers, shareholders, regulators as something other than, you know, the human beings they, they really are. They're not robots. They're not autocrats. They're, uh, they're people. Treat them that way and more good things will happen than not. Well, if anything, the, the word humanity has the word human in it. So maybe if executives and leaders could be more human, then we'd have a better humanity. Roger, uh, where can we find out uh, more about you? Where's the best place to, to go? Well, I have a, a website that where I've organized all the things I've I've written, and that's just www.rogerlmartin.com. Uh, if you do Roger Martin, it'll go to a, a very nice real estate broker in Houston who sends all sorts of things to, to me faith, faithfully, uh, <laughs> but I don't want to bother him too much. So that I'm at Roger L. Martin on Twitter. And one of the things that I've been doing, as you know, for the last almost two years now is writing a weekly medium series. It's called the Playing to Win Practitioner Insights uh, series. And, and people uh, seem to really love it. And so uh, uh, if you just go to Medium, uh, you'll uh, you'll find it. You don't have to you subscribe to my thing. I do my things. I think of it as a public service, so it's it's freely available there, and it's also uh, uh, replicated on my website. You can find it there too. It's ridiculously good. I encourage everyone <laughs> to go to that. It's just like this free Roger Martin insight into the brain of Roger. It's like please go, everyone. Yes. Hey, Roger, uh, thanks for this. I look forward to clinking glasses over a pint uh, one day soon in the future. And uh, again, um, congratulations on this, your 13th book. Thanks so much, Dan. It's always a pleasure. And yes, let's both go to the Drucker Forum this year in, in November and we will clink that glass. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Leadership Now, in this case with the one and only Roger L. Martin.